Well, if you have your Bibles, you open up to Acts chapter 16. It is the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, which is the record of the early church and the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it goes without saying, but I trust that Tuesday's debate served as a pretty good reminder for us all that hope is not going to be found in some political savior. The Jews made that same mistake. I pray we won't do such a foolish thing. That said, we are ironically beginning a series that is titled Citizen through the letter to the Philippians. And that word is chosen particularly because a citizen is a person who legally belongs to a country and has the rights and protections of that country. Citizens adopt the culture Uh, and the practices of the nation, um, kingdom in which they belong. And where you come from is important. It is uh, a significant thing about who you are and and where or, or what kind of person we become. And that's because where you're from often shapes your worldview and your perspective. It dictates your opportunities and your experiences. It does become a significant part of your identity. Now, spiritually speaking, every human being that's ever born is born into the kingdom of this world. That is a kingdom where you are born as a child of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us, under the regime of darkness. Naturally, we grow up adopting the ways of the fallen culture in which we find ourselves, following the course of the world that is led by the prince of the power of of the year, a spirit that leads to disobedience and the suppression of truth. In this kingdom, we're not free. We're slaves. The Bible says blinded by the God of this world. And yet, God, by grace, saves. He frees us. He gives us new eyes to see. He gives us ears to hear the truth. And through faith in Jesus, we are transferred from that kingdom of darkness we are born into, into the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of light. And those reborn by faith in Jesus, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, we are adopted as children of the King. And we are supernaturalized, if it were, as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. The old is gone The new has come, and with that new comes a new identity, a new loyalty, and a new destiny. We are made residents of a better country yet to come. And right now we exist as citizens of one kingdom, dwelling as exiles in another. So as we wait for the return of our king and the fullness of our citizenship to be realized, I have observed that we often forget our heavenly citizenship. And we swear allegiance to all kinds of different saviors. In our day and age, I think sometimes some people, not all the time, not everyone, but certainly sometimes being a Christian gets confused with being American. Or a number of other things that we seem to add to it. But don't misunderstand me. I 
believe that nationality is important and we should all thank God for where he allows us to live. However, through the adoption into the family of God, our primary allegiance is no longer to a flag or to a state or to a country. Our fundamental loyalty isn't to a political party or a man-made constitution. It is to Jesus Christ and His Word. We ought not forget that. I've heard it rightly said that there is an expiration date on America. As there is on every nation under heaven. They come and they go. God's kingdom, however, lasts forever. As does our heavenly citizenship. Now, you may have noticed, as I have, that the climate of our country right now is giving rise to a growing number of people and groups who almost monomaniacally are demanding and fighting for the rights of their earthly citizenship. And so, for our purposes, as the nation rages, I want to focus us instead, set our minds instead on the rights of and the responsibilities of our heavenly citizenship. Now, in order to understand the letter to the Philippians, we are going to have to understand the city of Philippi. What was that all about? And how the gospel came to the city and and how the church got planted in the city. And so to do that, we're going to go through Acts chapter 16. Most of the chapter, because I'm so kind, I've skipped the first five verses, but we're going to read the rest And it hopefully will bless you. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, when it says they, it's including Timothy and Paul and Silas and even Dr. Luke who is writing this. So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Myasia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging them and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and remained in the city many days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, quote, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they drew them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and the trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all who were in his house took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household, and his entire household that he had believed in God. But then when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have come to let you go, therefore Come now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. This is God's word and a lot of it. But to begin, let's just look at verses 6 to 7 for a moment. Then we'll work our way through the narrative. This is prior to going to Philippi. There's some surprising things said in here that you may be apt to read through quickly. And that is that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to speak the word in Asia at the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I don't know what form that took, how he knew that, but it happened. They were stopped. They were stopped from what seems like a good thing. Like we asked, doesn't God want the gospel to go into the whole world, including Asia and all these places? And yet... He was forbidden, yet he was not allowed. It seems like when things go wrong in our life, when things go poorly, when they're bad, when they go different than we expect, when even the mission of God seems to be disrupted, I find it curious how quickly we are to blame the enemies of God as opposed to the providence of God. It's always the enemy doing something, Satan doing something, the world doing something, 
Is it perhaps God doing something? God stopping, God preventing, God not allowing. Perhaps that's an uncomfortable thought for you. See, especially in the place we find ourselves right now. Many, perhaps many of you, certainly many around us, are convinced they know what the will of God is for tomorrow. They know what the solution is. They know how it should go if God has his way. If you read the Old Testament, though, it says more than one time that God's ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. In fact, a quick survey of the Old Testament gives us some interesting insight into some of God's ways that might seem wrong to us. Who would have thought it good that God would wipe the world clean with a flood? Or that he would cause the earth to swallow up 250 people in a moment? Or that he would allow the rule of corrupt kings? Or that he would raise up a foreign nation to enslave and exile his own people? Or that he would save his people through the deception of a harlot? Or that he would use a pagan Persian king to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple? That he would introduce the Savior as a baby born of a teenage virgin? That he would allow for the persecution of the church? Or to make it a little more connected with our world, that he would allow a pandemic? Or that he would allow a evil plandemic. Or that he would allow a violent protest. Or that he would empower a bad politician for his good purposes that are hidden to us. We make our plans, and we should. But God establishes our steps and he turns the hearts of kings like streams of water in the direction that he wants them to go. You see, Paul intended to do a very good thing for the glory of Christ, to preach the gospel in Asia and God wanted him in Macedonia. God wanted him in prison. That seems so counterintuitive to what is right. Well, Acts 16 verse 12 continues as he gets to Philippi. It describes Philippi in an interesting way. It is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, which is a large uh, district made of four regions, and a Roman colony. Now, originally, Philippi, just a little history for you, was conquered by Alexander the Great's dad, Philip II, and he gave the small village his name, Philip's City, Philippi. And it became a military stronghold. Well, 200 years after that, Rome came in, and Rome established it as one of their chief cities in the four districts of the greater Macedonian region. And about 40 years before Jesus was born, it became a very famous city for, uh, that is where Mark Antony and Octavian killed and defeated the assassins of Julius Caesar. So for those literary historical buffs around us, you know what I'm talking about. Now, socially, this very popular city uh, was populated with a lot of slaves, uh, a lot of servants or service providers, and a lot of peasant farmers. And most of the population lived actually at or just uh, below the subsistence level. Now, with the grant of land that the government actually gave to retired Roman soldiers, 
nearly 80 years before actually Paul set foot in Philippi, it became filled with military veterans. And so there's a lot of military veterans. Uh, it wasn't the majority population, but it was a very influential group within the population. And so politically, the people of Philippi were understandably very full of civic pride. They loved Rome. And because Philippi was a Roman colony, an important Roman colony, its citizens were granted certain rights under Italian law. So it was a very privileged place to live if you were a Roman citizen. You had land and poll tax exemptions. You had authority to buy and sell property. You had protection of the Roman law for certain trials and things like that, and other privileges that came with it. And so it's interesting, in his letter to the Philippians, he talks about citizenship several times, twice in fact, and, and it, it would actually appeal to the Philippians. They would, it would just sound, it would connect with their culture because of who they were. In chapter 4, verses 8 and following, there's a big list of, you know, dwell on these things, if anything praiseworthy, think about these things. That's a very Romanesque sounding list of virtues, which would have been very familiar to the people of Philippi. Now, spiritually, Philippi was just your typical first century colony in that they worshipped all kinds of gods. But one thing important is that as a Roman colony, they actually had the presence of the imperial cult there, which that cult was the one that declared uh, the uh, Caesar as a god. Uh, and he was worshipped as a god. And so there's no doubt that that ideology that Caesar claimed to be from you know, God or be divine and that he was bringing salvation and peace to the world, there's no doubt that that was present and known throughout not just the empire, but particular this colony. And so if you just step back and go, what is Philippi about? What kind of city is it like? It is this. Philippi is characterized primarily, not only, but primarily as a people who find their joy in their political rights, their hope in their political protection, and their faith in their political leader. That's Philippi, whom Paul is writing to. And let's be honest, sounds a little bit like our culture right now. Now, Paul's first sharing of the gospel in Philippi is an interesting experience. It leads, obviously, to the conversion of one woman named Lydia, who is in a place of prayer. She's a godly woman. God opens her heart, and she is baptized and believed along with her household. But from that point, things go poorly. So Paul continues to go back to this place of prayer and continues to preach the gospel, it's assumed. And there's a girl, a young girl, slave girl, who is demon-possessed with a spirit of divination who's following Paul day after day. And as she is following him, she is crying out, These men are servants of the Most High. They proclaim the way of salvation. And so you would think, like, well, that's true, but it's not the kind of demonic endorsement that Paul necessarily wants. So eventually he gets annoyed, Luke says. So annoyed, he's like, that's it, out of here, demon. He casts the demon out, and in doing so, the girl loses her powers of divination. And those powers were what was making money for her owners. And so the owners get very upset, and they grab Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the marketplace before the legal authorities. And it's important to see what they actually say. They say nothing about their slave. They say nothing about Jesus, necessarily. 
They make some interesting charges, and when you understand the context of Philippi, you know why they're saying them. They said, these guys are disturbing our city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's an important charge. Because if there's some kind of disturbance, some kind of rebellion of people that are advocating anti-Roman behavior, anti-Roman practices, if that were to get out to the empire and the city were to embrace that, they were at risk of losing their privileged status as a Roman colony. And so when they say that, the whole crowd is thinking about themselves, their rights, their privileges, everything, and going, that's bad. And they all get angry. The magistrates get angry very angry and so without a trial without a word they end up throwing these guys into prison after they're declared guilty kinda and beaten with rods they're locked up now as we seek to understand the nature of the gospel and the nature of the city in which this letter is written it's noteworthy that these citizens seem to perceive the gospel as a threat to their Roman culture. It's possible they misunderstand the gospel and they're just saying the very thing that could get people upset, but it's also very likely that they saw it as a real threat. And that's because it's been rightly said that when you declare Jesus as king, that is a political statement. When you declare Jesus as Lord, that's a political statement. It has consequences. It has certain things that are related to that. And when you declare that, especially in a city that's devoted to emperor worship, it's going to be a problem. The worship of Jesus is not intended to remain this isolated religious practice that doesn't affect the rest of your life. It's just something we do on Sundays. It's something you do in the privacy of your own home. It's something that is individual and personal to you and your family. The truth is, Citizenship, heavenly citizenship, is an important idea because it reminds us that our faith is designed to govern every part of our life. Wherever we're at, wherever we go, what we do in our vocations, what we do with our money, how we relate to our government, how we relate to one another, it's governed by this fact that I am a citizen of heaven first and foremost. So they did understand him rightly, but they disrupt, or they are disrupted because they are trying to disrupt the culture, or so they say. So it's also important to remember that before Paul arrived in Philippi, he'd received a vision, remember that. He received a vision of a man standing there saying, please come and help us. He's described as a man from Macedonia, and Paul is convinced by seeing this vision that I am supposed to preach the gospel in Macedonia and he begins to make his way there. And as he begins to preach, obviously, again, declaring Jesus as king, he's challenging their primary allegiances and, and everything that really they have used to govern their life as the authority. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't talk primarily about citizenship. He doesn't even appeal to his own citizenship until... Everything is done. What I mean by that, he doesn't at this point, prior to going into prison, say, hey, whoa, before you beat me, before you get upset, before you throw me into prison, just so you know, I'm a Roman. 
He had the opportunity to say it right there. He could have stopped everything and he chose to say nothing or he forgot, which is kind of unlikely. So he says nothing deliberately. You're upsetting Rome. He goes, I'm a Roman. He chooses not to. He doesn't appeal to his citizenship, as we'll see, until after he is released. And seeing as he is praying and singing while in prison and not just complaining and arguing about why he should be there, we clearly see that Paul trusts. Think about this. He trusts that the infringement, the unlawful infringement on his Roman citizenship is providentially, by the hand of God, a part of of that mission he received in the vision to advance the gospel in Philippi. Did you catch that? His infringement of his rights is part of the mission to advance the gospel. In fact, Paul's willingness, it's a willingness, not just a forgetfulness, a willingness to suffer the violation of his rights is actually instrumental to planting the church in Philippi. Paul didn't know that. Right? We have the end of the story. Paul didn't get some secret message like, by the way, church is going to be planted, so don't worry about prison. There's a faith in there. There's a trust in there. He's driven by something greater. God's ways are truly above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. As Paul and Silas are worshiping through their imprisonment, which right there is like a singing hymns in prison, just take that verse and consider how we suffer, how we endure the violation of our rights. Are we singing with joy? But what happens? A great earthquake shakes the whole prison shakes it so powerfully the doors blow open and their shackles blow off. So what would you be thinking at that point? Oh, I forgot to mention my citizenship. I could, be, I could have been out of this. Or maybe he's second guessing. I didn't say it, but maybe I should have. I don't know. Boom! Everything shakes. It's all open. You're like, what would you think? Oh, th- this is it, Lord. This is how you're going to work, God. This is how you're going to uphold my rights. This is how you're going to make a way for your mission to continue with such unlawful treatment. Clearly, because of the prison doors being blown open and my shackles being blown off, clearly, certainly, this is God wanting me to walk through this open door, escape the persecution of these tyrannical authorities, and advance the gospel. And if you believed that and thought that, you would be 100% wrong. It's fascinating that Paul neither fights for his rights prior to getting into prison, which are rightfully his, nor does he take advantage of the apparent open door in the name of furthering the gospel. On the contrary, what does he do? And this disturbs us, us Americans. 
He endures. He chooses to endure unjust, prejudicial, and painful mistreatment because he believes in the power of the gospel. When the jailer notices the doors are open, he assumes but we don't, they must have escaped. And because he would hold responsible for anyone who had escaped, he would be killed. So he grabs a sword going, they must have escaped. I know I would. And Paul stops and, whoa, 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 don't. Everyone's here, man. Everyone's here. And in fear, he falls before him. He says, what do I have to do to be saved? He say, believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved. So the jailer does believe, as does his entire family, and immediately his heavenly citizenship, right? He's been a Roman citizen. He's a jailer. He is in deep but immediately upon believing, his heavenly citizenship becomes the supreme governing authority in the life. How do we know that? Because he breaks the law by bringing them out of prison. These guys who are guilty, or at least accused, of advocating against Rome, against Roman practices. He brings them out of prison, so he basically says, heavenly citizenship, more important, and then he brings them into his home. And he exposes himself and his family into all kinds of possible punishment if he is to be discovered. And what we see in this is pretty fascinating. Not only does your heavenly citizenship change your relationship to the Lord, it changes your relationship to other citizens. Like they are, they go from being the the ones who, he's the jailer, keeping them in jail, to the one who is serving them in love. And loving them like family. I was struck as I was just studying this by what is written in Romans chapter 12 that Paul describes Christians as. It's a passage we don't read very often, but I think in our day and age right now, the place we find ourselves, we probably should read more often. But I warn you, the descriptions in it are not real popular. They feel counterintuitive, countercultural. And by countercultural, I mean against the world. I mean against even evangelical culture of how we should kind of conduct ourselves in life today. I know it's really small. Maybe it's a bigger up there. I'm going to paraphrase it. You should read it at some point. But citizens of heaven, those who are considered Christians, sons and daughters of the king, are described as those who do not repay evil for evil, but live peaceably with all. As those who give thought to what is honorable to all as those who love one another with a brotherly affection, those who outdo one another in showing honor, those who rejoice and are patient in tribulation, those who are constant in prayer, those who contribute to the needs of other Christians by showing them hospitality, inviting them into their home, those who rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, those who leave all vengeance with God and do not take it into their own hands. I mean, wow. That's quite a description. There's a distinct difference between a citizen of the world and a citizen of heaven. Well, the next day, the magistrates decide to release Paul and Silas. Who knows exactly why? But at this point, and not a moment earlier, is when Paul decides to reveal his Roman citizenship. 
and their grave mistake. See, Roman citizens, as I said, were granted all kinds of rights that most of the population in the Roman Empire weren't granted because most weren't citizens, actually. Some of those rights included the right to a trial, the right to appeal decisions, the right to remain safe and not tortured until you were actually convicted. These are all the things that Paul could have brought up earlier, and yet, why now? Why would you bring this up now? Why not earlier? Why, why now? It's a good question. Was Paul just being snarky? Right? Just being like, oh, man, you guys really screwed up. Like, why? I think in, rather than just being snarky or trying to get them in trouble, which he ultimately doesn't, just ask for an apology. He's actually given a testimony to the city, to the world, and to the church that's been planted. And what is that testimony? Well, I think in bringing up his earthly citizenship and revealing that his rights were legally violated. And he revealed this after he already had freedom. So he has freedom, so he's not doing it to obtain his freedom. He already is free, free to go. He's teaching some very important things that he fully trusts in his king and his heavenly citizenship more than he hopes in the law of the land and his rights as a Roman. He is clearly declaring that you can bind a man in prison, but you cannot bind the word of God. He is preaching that God can accomplish his redemptive plans with or without our earthly schemes. Paul is simply saying this in the most powerful way. Look, guys, I'm a Roman citizen. You broke the law. This is what I could have done to fight your kingdom and get my rights. But look at what my king did to advance his kingdom and to free me. That's a powerful statement. And I think the reason why he brings it up. Well, I'd like to close with the verse that Nate read in the call to worship, reminding us of who we are so that we don't accidentally swear allegiance to the wrong king. Peter writes it well. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. And why are we that? That we may proclaim the excellencies of our king who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, even if they're not so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify you, glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of a holy nation living as exiles in an unholy one. That is who we are. There is no expiration date on our heavenly citizenship like there is for every other nation on earth. Even as we give 
this nation our vote, which you should do. I pray you never give this nation your heart. That belongs to one king of the heavenly kingdom. And if your earthly citizenship is threatened, which it might very well be, if your rights are lost or violated, which they probably will be, if you are treated unjustly, thrown in prison, which you very well may be, I pray that you will remain a joyful person because you know who your king is and you know this that James Bryan Smith said so well. You are one in whom Christ delights and dwells. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither are you. That's what it means to live with your heavenly citizenship as an exile, citizen of one nation living in another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. We praise you for saving us from the kingdom of darkness that we are born into and transferring us into the kingdom of your Son. Lord, let us not forget who we are in Christ. Let us not forget that as the world falls apart around us, as our own life falls apart around us, as bad things happen, as our rights are even violated, that our citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, is not threatened. It is secure. That we truly live in an unshakable kingdom and we have nothing to fear. Help us, Lord, to live as those who don't fight for their rights in our earthly citizenship, but those who know very much our rights of heavenly citizenship and our responsibilities therein. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.